Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Because with heat, now there you really do have something for which measurement was absolutely critical and which, when reliable measurements were possible, heat became expressible along a single dimension. Life is not the kind of thing that is measured on a single scale. And that's fine. That's just the kind of thing life is. And I suspect consciousness may be more like life than like temperature. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast. Today, we welcome Dr. Anil Seth on the show. Dr. Anil Seth is the Professor of Cognitive and Computational Neuroscience at the University of Sussex, where he is also co-director of the Sackler Center for Consciousness Science. His research has been supported by the European Research Council, the Wellcome Trust, and the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research. Dr. Seth's 2017 main stage TED Talk is one of the most popular science TED Talks of all time, with more than 13 million views. His latest book, which has received numerous accolades, is called Being You, A New Science of Consciousness. In this episode, I talked to Dr. Anil Seth about the new science of consciousness. Although we don't know exactly how or why consciousness exists, Dr. Seth thinks this shouldn't stop us from exploring its properties. One of the things he explores in his research is the conditions for consciousness. He talks about a concept called perceptual diversity. He believes perceptual diversity exists and that we would be misguided to try and standardize consciousness on a single dimension for everyone. We also touch on the topics of intelligence, panpsychism, free will, AI technology, and the afterlife. This was a really poignant episode for me, and very informative. I've been wanting to chat with Dr. Seth for a really long time. We have mutual friends in common. We have a mutual mentor, Dr. Nicholas McIntosh, in common. And we really were in full geek-out mode in this episode. So I think you'll really gain a lot from it and learn a lot about his groundbreaking research on the nature of consciousness. So without further ado, I bring you Dr. Anil Seth. It's nice to finally meet you. Um, we have a lot of you know people in our inner, in our in our circle, and uh, 
and lots of mutual interests. There are so many things we could talk about today. And I promise you we'll get to some of your most, uh, the things that are most pressing on your mind these days. Actually, no, I know what things are most pressing on your mind these days and we'll get to it. <laughs> so have patience. We'll get there. But I'd Great. like to start just a little bit more rudimentary, if you don't mind, sure. uh, for our listeners. Of course. <laughs> By more rudimentary, I'm going to ask you, what do you think is the real hard problem of consciousness? <laughs> That's what I mean by more rudimentary. <laughs> the real hard problem of consciousness, that is actually a new one on me. I mean, there's the, the hard problem and the easy problems, which David Chalmers is famous for coining these terms. And the real problem is somewhere in the middle. So the hard problem, paneling David Chalmers, is the problem of how and why is it the case that any physical system, system made of stuff, whether that stuff is neurons or whether that stuff might be silicon, any kind of physical system could give rise to conscious experience, the, the so-called qualia, the, the redness of red, the feeling of anything. How can physical systems give rise to consciousness? And the easy problems uh, all the problems in neuroscience of how the brain works as a physical system, how its inputs get transformed into outputs through complicated circuitry. And the intuition in dividing things up this way, pajamas at any rate, is that solving all the easy problems of neuroscience, which of course aren't easy at all, they're incredibly challenging to do. But even at the end of neuroscience, the hard problem would still seem as pristine and as mysterious as ever. This big explanatory gap would still be there between the physical and, and the experiential, the phenomenal, the consciousness. And I tend to resist this idea that you can cleave consciousness off as one big scary mystery from all the other problems of neuroscience. The issue with That's the what easy problems is they would say. <laughs> <laughs> It may be, but I think the, the issue is that we can still address many things about consciousness uh, without necessarily facing the hard problem head on. You, I, I like to think of this analogy with life. It's not a perfect analogy, but I think it's illustrative, which is wasn't that long ago that biologists and chemists, and physicists of the day thought that life couldn't be explained in terms of physics and chemistry, in terms of things happening in physical systems. There was this hard problem of life. And in search of an answer, people were proposing things like, well, there must be a, an immaterial spark of life, an elan vital, something like that, that breathes fire into, phys into physical systems to bring them to life. And of course, that wasn't how things panned out in biology. People didn't find the spark of life. They instead didn't even look for it. They said, okay, li life exists. There are living systems. They have various properties. Let's try and explain those properties. And as they did this, the hard problem of life faded away and it became less mysterious and eventually just disappeared. It was never solved directly. And I think the same strategy is what might work in consciousness. And that's what I, I coin or describe as the real problem of con consciousness. It's take Accept that consciousness exists, but instead of looking for the spark of consciousness, let's identify the various properties that consciousness has. And these can be both functional properties. What can we do and other creatures do in virtue of being conscious? But crucially, they can also be experiential or the longer word phenomenological, like why a visual experience is the way it is and different from an emotional experience. 
the things that really capture the experiential aspects of consciousness. And as we can sort of explain those things, why particular conscious experiences are the way they are and not some other way, then the hope is that this hard problem of consciousness will begin to fade away too. Whether it dissolves entirely in a puff of philosophical smoke or not, that's hard to say in advance. But rather than presuming one way or the other, I think we have to do the, the hard work of trying to build explanations about the properties of consciousness in terms of processes in the brain and the body and, and see how far we get. Yeah, and I like how you integrate lots of different areas of psychology and, and different levels of analysis. It always seemed like the obviously right approach. <laughs> um, when, when I look at uh, just correlations between brain, you know, qualia and brain activations and, and, and kind of just stop there and, you know, and kind of triumphantly publishing your paper and saying, we're done, you know, that, that never felt quite satisfying. Uh, never felt deeply satisfying. I'm a cognitive scientist, but I'm also a humanistic psychologist. And uh, these are two areas I've been trying to combine, uh, which I have, I just don't see combined. And and I see a little glimmer of it in your book with, uh, you know, you bringing in a sort of a humanistic appreciation of inner experience and um, understanding uh, and trying to understand different ways that it, it can, it can be to, uh, it can feel to be alive, different ways it can feel to be alive. And uh, to me, that's a humanistic approach. And I'm also a cognitive scientist, as are you. So I, I think we have... Lots to geek out on today. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. I haven't heard the term humanistic psychologist before, but if it describes what you just said, that an, an interest to focus in the lived experience of being a human being, it is, um, yeah. then, well, then I think I, I agree. And I think there is this, it's the central question of understanding the nature of how we experience the world and the self is is the overlap of this Venn diagram then, I guess, between humanistic psychology and, and cognitive science. I mean, I started out when I was an undergraduate studying experimental psychology in the mid nineties. It was all very, it was a mixture of behaviorism, frankly, still about just how we yeah. understand stimulus responses in, in rats and, um, and cognitive psychology, which at the time was very exciting, but it was all just boxes and arrows and the dominant metaphor of the brain is a computer and, information processing happening um, that was the basis for all the cognitive functions like memory and attention. Consciousness was just not there. And the, I suppose the lived experience of being human wasn't there either. So yeah, I, th I think where these things come together, that, that is the bullseye of, of my interest, certainly. Yeah. Um, and I hear you, by the way. I mean, I actually am entrained in the British tradition of uh, uh, of psychometrics and experimental psychology. I did my experimental psychology degree at Cambridge, uh, studying with Nicholas McIntosh. <laughs> was my uh, oh no way advisor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that's my just exactly the same. He he was my yeah, advisor too. Yeah, what? Yeah. No, get out of here. Yeah, you studied yeah, with yeah, Nicholas no, I was McIntosh. At, yeah, he was at King's College. He was the uh, head of King's psychology, College, yes. right? And yes, he was a fellow correct. at King's College, and that was my college. Correct. So that was my college privilege. Too. That was my so college. Wasn't it amazing? As, as an undergraduate, I mean, we had this incredible privilege of being tutored by one of the most eminent psychologists of the, of the 20th century. Um, although somebody who I later developed very different views from, but oh, I remember Nick McIntosh very, very well. Yeah, what, what a guy. I had no idea that we had that connection in common. That was totally spontaneous. 
Um, I not many people I could spontaneously say that we can bond over our our love and appreciation and respect for Nicholas McIntosh. Yeah, he's he's been my main mentor in my life and uh, yeah. in psychology. And what what is cool uh, about him is, I mean, he came from a very traditional British uh, behaviorist tradition uh, with rats, you know, and uh, operant conditioning. <laughs> Um, but I, what I studied with him was intelligence and IQ testing and um, the nature of uh, human intelligence. And and so, you know, trying to think a lot about um, some of the themes in your book and how uh, I very much agreed with this notion that the, the royal route to understand consciousness is probably not going to come simply through an understanding of information processing. I, look, I agreed with that. A thousand percent, and that's probably because we're both influenced by Nicholas Macintosh. That's <laughs> so funny. I, ne- <laughs> so I funny. never thought of that possibility, but, but indeed, Macintosh yeah, coming from a pre-cognitive science era in many ways was, yes. was, was at least making us both implicitly aware that accepting full information processing metaphor was not necessary. There'd been psychology before it. There could be psychology after it too. Hmm. Absolutely, and um, and and also just not reducing consciousness to IQ type processing because we can make computers very easily to solve like IQ test type items. You know, like you can, uh, you know, Patricia Carpenter, who was one of my other mentors at Carnegie Mellon, like she easily showed that you can make computers solve the Raven's advanced progressive matrices test, you know, like one of the gold standard measures of general intelligence. Not a big issue, not a big uh, hard thing to do. But the question, can you make computers conscious? You know, I mean, it, it really does get the heart of what consciousness is. And and you have you have a well, maybe I should ask you, how do you conceptualize consciousness? Like, what do you what do you see as some of the necessary and and uh, some of the necessary? We won't even say sufficient, but what are some of the necessary features of consciousness of human human consciousness? Let's start with human consciousness. I, I did jump into the AI deep end, but I didn't mean to do that yet. No, I'm glad you did. I'm sure I'm sure we'll get back to that because it does the the way we define consciousness as very immediate implications for how we might think about the possibility of machine consciousness or artificial mm. intelligence as being conscious. But just stepping back then to the necessary components of, of consciousness, for humans at least, well, I think they're fairly minimal to describe. So this is this is the question of definition. And I've always been attracted by the definition that the philosopher Thomas Nagel uses when he says that for a conscious organism, whether this is a human or some other creature, it feels like something to be that organism. Or rather, he says, there is something it is like to be that organism. There's something it's like to be me. There's something it's like to be you. But there's nothing it is like to be a table or a chair or, or a laptop computer. And this definition is super simple, right? It's just there's some kind of experiencing going on for a conscious system. And it seems on the face of it that this is too rudimentary, too holistic, almost circular to be of any use. But I think it's really useful because of what it leaves out. It Consciousness doesn't necessarily involve intelligence, at least not sort of human level intelligence. It doesn't necessarily involve any specific kind of behavior, doesn't necessarily involve language. It doesn't necessarily involve um any particular 
function that we might describe as cognitive. It's just the presence of raw experience. Now, what the necessary conditions are in the stuff under the hood in terms of brain mechanisms and processes, well, that's still that's still an open question. But just defining consciousness that minimally in terms of any kind of experience going on at all, I think that's, that's a helpful place to start so that we don't get um, driven down avenues that seem more appealing because they're easier to study. Like It's tempting to associate consciousness with intelligence because, as yeah. you said, with Nick McIntosh, we can, we can write down various criteria for what intelligence consists in, at least for humans, and we can define it functionally in terms of what systems do. And it's also tempting because of this residual human exceptionalism that I think still hard to get away from. This is the idea that, yeah, we're humans, we're special, we're at the center of everything, and we're intelligent. We have this, this fantastic generalized intelligence. And so surely that must be associated with this other really special thing, precious thing for us, which is being conscious. And over history, people have often used intelligence as a proxy for, for consciousness. And I think that's, that's a real mistake. They're both fascinating. They're both very interesting. They're both actually quite poorly defined, but they are absolutely not the same thing. I'm getting a little bit of a panpsychism vibe from you <laughs> as you say that. Um, do you, are you like a big, are you a proponent of panpsychism? Oh no, I don't think panpsychists okay. see me as a particular ally. I, I think okay. there's a, lo a lot of middle ground between not being, um, uh, sort of a human chauvinist for consciousness yeah. and being panpsychist. I don't find panpsychism very appealing at all. Okay. I, th I, I just, I think that it's uh, it's an easy, kind of an easy out to the hard problem. You know, if, if you're struggling to explain how, how it is that consciousness can be identical to or emerge from material stuff then well of course you can just say well we don't have to explain that because it's it's everywhere in everything ubiquitous and fundamental but it doesn't really explain anything when you do that it's um i, I think an idea or a philosophical perspective in this area or in any area of science really is not judged so much by whether it's demonstrably right or wrong, because very few are. I mean, you can't prove panpsychism right or wrong, just as you can't prove materialism right or wrong. But to take out a, a leaf out of the philosopher of science, Imre Lakatosh, um, you know, he would evaluate programs based on how productive they are. You know, does a particular view generate testable hypotheses that shed light on the phenomenon in question? And here I think materialism has many resources to help us understand consciousness. I mean, this is the whole hope and, and agenda of this real problem approach and of many other neuroscientists as well who might not agree with the exact details of what I suggest, but broadly the idea that materialism can shed light on consciousness. Whereas panpsychism just doesn't do this. You know, it, this, it doesn't lead to any novel, testable experiments. At least I haven't heard of any yet and i can't quite see how it would because you take panpsychism really seriously uh at least some of the most finessed expressions of it and here i'm thinking about people like philip goff who, who's i've argued with many times about panpsychism mm. um 
yeah, he will say that that consciousness, in his view of panpsychism, is the intrinsic nature of things, and it's not right. really observable in any interactions property. between things. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and if it's not going to make any difference to anything that actually happens, um, by definition, then it it's you're just bootstrapping it away from any kind of of testability or explanatory power. So, no, I, I, <laughs> I'm definitely not. Not a, 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 I'm not a great proponent of panpsychism. It's safe to say. Yeah, I take it. I take that intuition back. Then, yeah, because uh, I mean, you clearly in your book argued. Correct me if I'm wrong. It seems like you really believe life is a necessary condition for consciousness. You know, uh, it, that Almost. that's the sense I get. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I struck. I was. This was very interesting for me. Part of writing the book. And just the evolution of how I've been thinking over the last 10 years or so, I didn't set out with the idea that life would be so central. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting when the experiments and the, and the theories, they lead you to somewhere where you don't expect to go at the beginning. It doesn't mean it's right or wrong. It just means that it's like, oh, hey, you know, this is interesting. This wasn't something that I just assumed beforehand mm. so the whole trajectory of ideas has led me to to recognize a, a very intimate relationship between life and consciousness and the more that relationship becomes um fleshed out which is a <laughs> kind of a strange metaphor the more it becomes fleshed out i think the less appealing the information processing metaphor becomes you can sort of see how it might be life rather than information processing that that bridges this gap between the the material and and the phenomenological but i'm still a bit cautious about how far to make claims for that relationship so there is a version or the equivalent rather of panpsychism for this view would be biopsychism and biopsychism is the view that everything that is alive is also conscious. Consciousness just is a, a, a ubiquitous property of living systems. I think that's going too far. It may be true, but I don't see a reason to believe that. Then there's the weaker position, which is biological naturalism, which is what you just said, which is that life is necessary. Everything that is conscious is alive. But not sufficient. But not sufficient. And I'm, yeah. I'm tempted by that, but I'm still, you know, I'm still, I still wonder what I, I definitely think is the case is that an understanding of consciousness as it's expressed in humans and other animals absolutely relies on looking at it through the lens of our nature as living systems and that our nature as living systems shapes our conscious experiences at, at all levels. Let's see how far understanding neural activations can get us in in answering some of those deep questions. So there's a lot of debate in the field, as you know, about um, which are the most essential bits of the brain for consciousness. I mean, it's just all over the place. Everyone, it seems like almost every neuroscientist has their own favorite, you know, like the some people are like, it's the brainstem! <laughs> some people are like, my friend Daniel Bohr at University of Cambridge is like, it's the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex! <laughs> Uh, I don't know if you read his book, The Ravenous Brain, by any chance. 
Yeah, no, Dan's a, a good friend of mine. In fact, he used he's to a good be friend a postdoc. of mine too. Yeah, there's another one. Right. So Dan yeah. was a postdoc with me for a while, um, mm. many years ago. And yes, of course, now he's an independent researcher for a long time. I read his book in the early, early days. It's great, actually. It's, it's been around for a while. Yeah. We wrote a paper together once, actually, about the neural correlates of consciousness, exploring the more kind of frontal, parietal view. Um, but what's fascinating to me is indeed, like out there, there's the full range. I mean, there are people, as you say, like Mark Soames, who argue for the the sufficient basis for consciousness being pretty much in the brainstem, right. all the way to the advocates that it's that it's mainly in the prefrontal cortex. And then you've got exactly everything in between you got the as whole well. range. So, <laughs> you got yeah. the whole range. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just trying. To, I'm just trying to like just explore with you where all that where we're at right now where it takes us in understanding it you know we have that's why i think we're at the end of the day both of us really think we need to we need to go past this <laughs> we need to have lots of other levels of analysis to integrate here to really get to a deeper understanding but um i mean one area of the brain that i don't think has received as much love um in understanding consciousness um is the default mode brain network and that's an area of the brain i've been studying um, which gives us a sense of self, you know, it gives us our set, you know, it, this gets to the heart of a lot of what you talk about in your book, you know, it gives us a sort of sense that there's a, a meaning, uh, a continuity of meaning in our, our self that we draw on our episodic memories for, and we imagine the future self, uh, to, you know, to draw on in order to imagine a future self. And well, I'm just wondering if you've thought much about the the importance of the default mode network for, for human consciousness. Uh, not as much as I probably should have. I've I've always been a little suspicious of the amount of weight the default mode network is supposed to carry when it comes to explaining things, because it's sort of it's just what you observe. You know, of course, empirically, fascinating story, right? It's was observed in the bits in between when people were doing the real things they were supposed to be doing when they were just resting and their mind was wandering. And so you see this correlated activity between regions that's happening in these interstices between tasks, between activities. And this is fascinating. I think there's a lot more to the self than can be accounted for by this activity that is you know, default mode, so to speak. Um, there is super interesting work that, that I'm sure you know more about th than me that can tie this sort of activity to mind wandering to this inner narrative um which is certainly important when it comes to the self but then there are so many other aspects of self that i think are easier to take for granted because they might not be so obvious as the voice in the head but that are just as significant and these range from experiences of the body the body is an object in the world and the body from within with its emotions and moods and, and back to the life thing, just the core experience of being a living organism, which I think is really difficult to describe. But maybe that's the bedrock of experiences of self. Now to things like first person perspective and free will, experiences of agency and volition, and then experiences of being part of a social network. All these different elements of self you know, are likely to rely to different degrees on many different parts of the brain. I mean, we have things like the limbic system, the insular cortex for, for the body, 
you know, we have the temporal parietal junction for first person perspective. Um, we have prefrontal cortex for metacognition and, and perhaps the more social elements of self. So trying to find where in the brain the self is, I think, is just doomed to failure. And I have not focused that much, probably because my career just has not involved that much brain imaging, certainly not not that much fMRI, which is the kind of brain imaging that tempts you to make claims about localization. I'm much more interested in processes rather than specific locations. And the whole idea that I leverage to try and explain properties of consciousness in terms of brain mechanisms is this idea of the predictive brain. The brain is a prediction machine. And that's more a claim about the type of process, the type of um, computation, at least type of thing we would describe in computational languages that's going on rather than uh, a claim about exactly where all this is happening. Because I think that's probably quite fluid, quite changing, depending on what's happening in one's conscious field at any particular point. Well, that's that's a really good segue into the notion of perceptual diversity. Um, you know what you just said, and I know that's really on your mind a lot these days. Um, look, this is really interesting because I've spent my career arguing for neurodiversity. And um, I'm really big in the neurodiversity movement and in schools as well and helping support kids who think differently. Um, you have one sentence in your whole book where you, you n give a head nod to neurodiversity and you say, well, there, that movement is focused on more uh, atypical or abnormal manifestations, but certainly, you know, we can, we can look at perceptual variations among everyone in the population. Um, I, why don't we today, let's, let's bridge these two fields. Let's integrate them. Let's not treat them as though they're, they're both different ends of a continuum, but they're both on the same continuum, I think, in, in, in an important way. You know, we all differ, yeah, in our perceptual diversity. And uh, the idea that there are neurotypical people uh, has always bothered me. That that phrase, you know, as though like, oh, they wouldn't understand, they're neurotypical. I never liked that in the neurodiversity movement. So I feel like yeah. there's something we can do here today that, that'll be unique. I think that would be great because the, the more I've talked about perceptual diversity, um, I think there has been potential of confusion about terminology and agendas between people arguing for neurodiversity or, or arguing about the implications of it and so on. Um, so yeah, let's do that. I mean, I, I totally agree with you that we all differ. Um, and the way I've tended to think of things is that there's distributions which can be just along a spectrum. And you know, we think of things like the normal distribution, the Gaussian distribution. There's more, more stuff is going on in the middle than at the extremes or the edges, but the, the edges are easier to notice. And so as far as I've understood the history of the neurodiversity movement, really came about through a recognition of, of some of these, these edges. So conditions like, like autism. And it was realized, okay, there's a very different way of encountering the world here. Um, it's not necessarily a worse way, a less accurate way. It's a different way. And in the way society is structured, it, it comes with challenges. You don't realize that these ways 
uh, are as different as, as they might be. But a focus on these tales of the distribution or these, these, these expressions of diversity that become noticeable, ironically, that's reinforced the view that you and I agree is problematic, which is that there is a neurotypical, single neurotypical alternative. And that if you don't associate with a neurodivergent condition that you're, you're neurotypical, you see the world as it is, you hear the world as it is. And that undersells the, the fact that we, we are all different. We're all misperceiving. <laughs> we're all misperceiving. And we're all misperceiving ourselves and the world. But because of two things, we fail to recognize this. One thing is that the differences might not be very large. So most of us don't differ that much in height, and it usually doesn't make a difference, but at least we can see how different people are in height. But we can't directly see or experience what it's like to have somebody else's experience. So these smaller differences, even if they exist, they are not, they're not visible to us and they may not matter that much and they don't surface into our, our language and our behavior unless they get you know, beyond some sort of threshold. And the second reason is more subtle, but equally significant, I think, which is that our experience of the world has the character that it's just revealing objective reality as it is. I look out there, I see the world. It doesn't seem to me that the way I'm experiencing it is dependent on my brain, even though it is. So this kind of naive realism of our daily experience, coupled with the fact that the differences may not be large enough to surface into behavior, I think together cause us to overlook the diversity that exists between between all of us and of which neurodiversity is is a part and probably the part that deserves the most attention. But I'd argue that to give it the attention it deserves, we really need to understand the nature of diversity across the whole distribution between all of us. I agree a thousand percent. And you've really put words to something that has bothered me about the neurodiversity movement for a long time. And um, I, I couldn't be more on board with your project. And I want to contribute to it. I want to do studies uh, and help you. I want to be part of this movement that you're doing. The idea that uh, we underestimate the extent to which seemingly small um, uh, perceptual uh, differences matter. Uh, I couldn't agree more. I think we do underestimate well, what I just said, I think we underestimate the extent to which small perceptual differences can over time, um, you know, maybe not in particular moments, but over time can lead to tremendous differences in political outlooks, can lead to tremendous differences in worldview differences, in can cause wars, can cause, I mean, this is, it can lead to very important outcomes, different outcome right. differentials. I I, that's potentially true. I think it's very hard to demonstrate that, but I think the dynamics of that kind of processor are, are just there. And I've sometimes used the idea that just as we we live in social media echo chambers, where we think the way the world is 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 just just is according to our beliefs, and we don't encounter information that challenges that. We also live in perceptual echo chambers. You know, we see the world in one way and we assume that's the way the world is. And 
of course, there's this fluid boundary between perception and belief. We know in, in, you know, in cognitive science now, this whole idea that cognition is completely separate from perception is just not, not really true. I mean, there's plenty of examples of cognition and perception affecting each other. So it, it may well be that literally perceiving things one way can lead to eventually believing things that particular way. And how do you counter that kind of dynamic? Well, the first step is to, of course, realize that it's going on. I mean, the biggest danger of social media echo chambers is not to realize that you live within one and to mistake whatever news channel you watch for being impartial, objective, fully accurate. And the same goes for our perceptual habits. If we just go along with the naive realism that our experience presents, that okay, the way I see it is the way things are, then it's really, really hard to appreciate that people might experience things differently and perhaps then believe things differently. There is, I think, social and political value in this project of understanding perceptual diversity because it can cultivate a a nascent humility about the way each of us might encounter our own worlds through our experience. And that humility, I think it's a valuable, it's a, it's a valuable recognition that can help us you know, build platforms for empathy, for communication, whether, whether it's with people with neurodiverse conditions or whether it's with people who seem to believe very different things. And we are trying to do this. So it became clear thinking along these lines that there's quite a lot of work in psychology, which looks at individual differences in one or two different things. Like people might differ in their vividness of their mental imagery. And there's a lot of research about that or about, let's say, synesthesia. That's the work I did with Macintosh. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, that's yeah. amazing. So many yeah, connections. And, and sex differences and sex differences in that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, but there's not a whole lot out there that tells us about perceptual diversity in general and what are the underlying factors. Like in your work with Macintosh, it was a lot of the intelligence literature was about trying to find underlying factors that explain sort of intelligence in different domains, as far as I understand that area. So the same thing might, might happen with perception. Are there underlying factors that, that might be traits that we have, able traits? that explain different ways of perceiving the world, whether it's in imagery or color perception or time perception or emotions or mm. sound, music. So we have this project called the Perception Census, which is an online project. Uh, it's just a series of interactive illusions and little experiments that people can do, come back to, and that are designed to tease out these dimensions of variation to, to map out, but uh, really this first time, I think with this breadth and scale, what this hidden landscape of inner diversity really looks like. And I'm excited about this. I don't, I don't think anyone's tried to do this before. I mean, we have 10 different sections, each looking at different types of perception with about more than 50 little demonstrations and tests in total, all exploring different aspects of perception. And we've already had more than 20,000 people take part from um, more than 100 different countries. And people taking part, I mean, they contribute massively to the data, but they also learn about their own powers of perception too. And 
I've been told it is fun to do and, and educational, so that's good. So we still are in the data collection phase. We still are waiting to see what the world looks like from this point of view. So if any of your listeners want to help us along this journey, then please do uh, give the Perception Census a go. It's easy to find. You can just find it on on my website, anilseth.com, or, or just look for Perception Census. But it'd be wonderful to get more people taking part. This is wonderfully exciting. Earlier in my career, when I went full on on the job market, but my personal statement argued that the field of cognitive science needs to integrate with the field of individual differences research, because that seemed to me like a huge, huge missing integration in the field of psychology. Like those two fields just didn't talk to each other. Um, my, my PhD dissertation was um, taking all these cognitive science implicit learning tasks and, and, and trying to ask the question, are there individual differences in all these ways of um, uh, processing information non-consciously? Uh, and that was work I partly did with um, uh, Nick McIntosh and partly did with uh, Jeremy Gray uh, at Yale. Um, but um, it just feels... And what like, did you uh, find? Yeah. What did you find? Were there individual well, differences uh, in implicit well, thanks learning? thanks for asking. I found there are absolutely um, uh, reliable and uh, predictive individual differences in all these cognitive science implicit mm-hmm. learning tasks. Not all of them. I didn't mean all of them. In in some of them, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I have a whole appendix uh, of my dissertation of the ones where there aren't, <laughs> like artificial uh, AG learning, and I really didn't as much as Reber. Uh, actually, that's in line with with Arthur Reber's hypothesis that there shouldn't be evolution should not have uh, put much individual differences in that. But we found like serial reaction time learning, for instance, predicted openness to experience, the personality trait. But I just want to urge you in your research to. Um, to open the door to including the link between perceptual variability or perceptual diversity and personality variability. Uh, because I think that's a really area that's ripe that I want, that I desperately wanted to, uh, you know, in my, to, to, I wanted the field to, to pay more attention to. That's fascinating. I will definitely do that. I must admit the whole personality area is not something I know anything about. I think we include some questionnaires that might address this a little bit, but I, I know it's not been a big focus of, of our work there. But yeah, it should be. And I think, by the way, I think you're absolutely right. You're definitely ahead of the game on recognizing a need to integrate these two areas. Hmm. Because it's a bit of a it's a it's a bit of a strange thing if you think about it, how on the one hand, most psychology experiments that are studying some function, whether it's implicit learning or attention or whatever it might be, and typically in practice will take a group of people, usually psychology students, and then average over them so that you get one one finding, treating them as implicitly, you know, all the same or as or as stochastic variations on a single thing. Just as you know, this is in statistics, you can. If the, va- if the variation is random, you can add things together, you get a better estimate. That's how statistics works. But, but there's that aspect, which is, which is making the explicit assumption that individual variance doesn't matter, um, right. that it's noise on the distribution. And on the other hand, you've, you've got individual differences, which makes entirely the opposite assumption. Right. Of course, the challenge is that to do individual difference research, you need to sample diverse populations and you need large numbers. Um, but that's that's just a methodological challenge. There's no conceptual problem with marrying these two things. I mean, the Perception Census Project 
has been very challenging logistically and to get the scale that that we need. But it's yeah, it's not it's not like building the James Webb telescope. It's it's quite possible to do. And psychology, I think, is a field. There's elements of it that can benefit from a more big science approach, from doing things with many groups at scale. It's it's not enough to just rely on individual single experiments done in small groups anymore. Well, I agree. There there's so many deep implications of your project, um, and um, it's exciting to be able to just talk it through. Um, one obvious big implication is is this notion that there is the um, the mad the, let's say the special sauce of consciousness the whole idea that that, that we can measure the extent and, and standardize the extent to which this person's more conscious than this person um, I just think um, kind of doesn't make sense in in, in your world um, where we start to look at more uh, perceptual areas of diversity, or maybe it makes sense just at a different level of analysis. I think there's just some really deep implications of your work on perceptual diversity for recognizing that different people um, may uh, have different perceptual and conscious experiences, but th- it doesn't make one person's conscious experience any less conscious um, than another person in some sort of standardized way like what does it mean to put everyone on the same metric like when we put everyone on the same metric of iq and we say and we we would just measure deviations of intelligence based on one number um that a lot of intelligence researchers have rightly pointed out like one of my mentors robert sternberg has rightly pointed out well you know that like that really doesn't show the full complexity of intelligence by doing that um could you make an analogous argument with consciousness you know that by Comparing everyone to a singular uh, metric or number, we're not doing uh, the ver- variety of consciousness justice. I think you might well do that. It's it's a pleasant myth, isn't it, that you might have this single scale, right, for a property that that seems a little bit mysterious. And sometimes that's worked. And I often have been thinking, especially when I was writing the book, it was much in my mind about this distinction in the history of science between our heat became understandable and how life became understandable because with heat now there you really do have something for which measurement was absolutely critical and which when reliable measurements were possible heat became expressible along a single dimension and was fully accounted for in terms of that now mean molecular kinetic energy of whatever it is that that just is heat and when we say something is 286 degrees Kelvin, I mean, there's no other dimensions to worry about when it comes to heat. That's it. That's a full explanation. Now, will this apply to consciousness? So some theories I don't necessarily think have explicitly made that claim directly, but use that as a sort of starting point. Yeah, and of course it is. Assumption. Well, and it's it may be a useful heuristic because there is a sort of global difference between losing consciousness entirely in general anesthesia, mm. maybe being a little bit conscious in, in drowsiness or in light sleep and being fully awake and aware. So it, it intuitively makes sense that there's some some level of globality, but it seems ambitious to think that's the whole thing in the same way that temperature is the whole thing. 
with with heat and but it as a starting point you know you can begin to build very very uh early measures of global conscious level based on this idea and we've done some of that work too it's measures of brain complexity or brain entropy that track conscious level um in a very sort of um coarse-grained way but then if you look in more detail and you realize okay actually global levels of consciousness are not just on a single dimension being drowsy is different from being let's say in a trance state and there's being in a psychedelic state and there's as being in a vegetative state, and there are all kinds of um, dimensions. The philosopher Tim Bain and with the, the neurologist uh, Adrian Owen, you know, both both colleagues of mine, published a very nice paper um, a few years ago now, which tried to identify the different global dimensions of consciousness and argued that a given conscious state you know, cannot be reduced to a single dimension. It must be along, it's, it's best captured along many dimensions. And even phi, even the, the quantity you alluded to earlier from integration, integrated information theory. Yes, there, there is a single number, but in the more recent versions of integrated information, what matters most is really the, the shape underneath that big number. There's this idea of a whole structure in this space, which they call cause effect space. And, and that determines the kind of consciousness with the overall level being, being part of that story but that is that's the theory that's among the current crop of theories of consciousness that to me is still most similar to the heat perspective because it really does say this amount of phi you know this amount of of irreducible integrated information then such and such amount of consciousness and there's a sort of identity relationship between the two in the same way there's an identity relationship between molecular kinetic energy and and heat yeah, but yeah, I think right. I, I find myself more attracted to the view that this idea of the global level is a, is a good starting point, and there are some globally useful distinctions like anesthesia and waking consciousness, but that it's more multidimensional, and that again is a is a feature that's shared with life. Like life, you don't measure how much life something has, but that doesn't mean biology is any less scientific than than thermodynamics or the physics of temperature, life is not the kind of thing that is measured on a single scale. And that's fine. That's just the kind of thing life is. And I suspect consciousness may be more like life than like temperature in this respect. I suspect the same thing. Um, lots of lots of implications. You know, there's a, a big push, um, especially in America, for diversity and inclusion. And I mean, it's not like the diversity inclusion movement's talking about perceptual diversity. <laughs> they're, they're not, they're not in their meeting, their, their, their meetings. They're not like, let's look at the latest research on neuroscience and see. <laughs> and, and I just, I, I love just integrating all sorts of different areas of life. Something, an argument I've been trying to make in is that I don't understand why the, uh, the, the inclusion diversity movement, um, is so skin deep. You know, like even the neurodiversity <laughs> movement's not a part of it. I'd never understand. I don't understand. Like, what's why is it? Why are we just focusing on sexual, uh, on gender identity and and race? Um, do you think that there are going to show differences in, or have you looked at demographics showing perceptual diversity differences that map on to different race? Or do you think it just it's gonna we're gonna find it transcends 
uh, race and gender, and those are not the most important constructs to understand perceptual diversity. Have you thought about that at all? I've, I've thought about it. I mean, we are collecting some demographics, um, which will be able to shed some light on these kinds of questions. We haven't looked at, I should say, we haven't looked at the data yet. So we're trying to be good um, methodological scientists about this and not peek at the data until we've finished collecting it and have decided what are the hypotheses we're going to test. So we don't just do sort of um, digging around in it. Um, but yeah, we, we could... We could look at that. And my suspicion is that you know, you'll always find differences. If you divide a population into two by some criteria, you'll probably find a difference. It's, the question is, is that a meaningful difference? It's like the, the gender difference or the sex difference. Um, things that, that people are always asking, is there a difference between men and women when it comes to X? And you can probably say, well, there usually is a difference, but you'll find much more variance within men and within women than in general between. So it's predictive and explanatory value is often not very apparent and is of course very um, open to being politicized. So very, while I'm interested in it, I'm not I'm not sort of aggressively going after looking for differences that associate with these kinds of differences in in race, in in culture and so on. But I do think it's interesting. I mean for instance language I think would be a very fascinating thing to look at. I mean, we, there's, there's a whole story about the extent to which language influences perception, the, the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, yeah. as, which was name-checked brilliantly, I thought, in the film Arrival. I was so glad that they actually used the name, the, um, the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis nice. in the dialogue, which is, of course, about these heptapod-like creatures and, and how language affected their, you know, the way in which they experienced time, this beautiful film. Um, mm. So that, for me, is a very rich terrain um, to look at. There may be other differences, too. I don't know. I also agree that this this whole EDI emphasis uh, should be much more than skin deep and should definitely consider perceptual and, and neural diversity. Yeah. And here, the other thing about neurodiversity that, that I remember from the founding principles of it was was the analogy with biodiversity. It's not, this is not something that we should look at as a feature of the way the world is that we need to cater for somehow, but it's fundamental to the richness of society, just as you know, an ecosystem needs a diversity of, of plants and of species within it to flourish. So society needs a, a diversity of ways of perceiving too uh, to flourish. So I'd like to see, I mean, I speak as, as somebody with brown skin, which, which is an interesting position to be in, in these EDI communities, because, you know, I have a kind of countable diversity. But for me, you know, that's, that's less, it's certainly not very relevant. And differences in perception between people might be much more relevant than the fact that I've got brown skin. Look, I hear you. Um, there's something really feels incomplete to me about um it, as it, no matter how well intentioned it is you know the, the this big push in america to only look at those super, i think superficial characteristics of a human right i think the first step in any discussion of diversity of course has to be understanding how that diversity is expressed and how it's actually manifest unless you know that it's there you can't do anything about it or do anything with it either positive or negative so yeah, that's that's a good motivation to to keep 
doing what we're doing, I hope, and, and looking yes. looking at what perceptual diversity is out there. By the way, I should say that that you know this is a big project. I don't want to give the impression that it's just my my little group doing it. And we're collaborating with with the philosopher in Glasgow, uh, Fiona McPherson, who's been brilliant um, co uh, lead on this project, really, because these things have as well as implications in in that you were mentioning. There's a lot of philosophy going on here as well mm. in terms of how do we how do we phrase these things how do we how do we understand the uh, relationship between perception and illusion and, and hallucination mm. um and we're also surveying people's implicit philosophical beliefs too i think there's going to be some interesting variants there about the extent to which people have maybe unexa- unexamined philosophical ideas about perception and about um, the relationship between perception and objective reality that will also be fascinating in and of itself, but also maybe in relation to other aspects of perception, because that that's what our project, I think, really enables, which is where the power is, which is not just looking at different aspects of perception and belief separately, but looking at them all together so that we can see what goes with what, what factors underlie them, what's the, the sort of structure of the latent space of our perceptual differences. That's what I'm excited to, to uncover. You might want to look at Jared Clifton's work on primals. Uh, come across it at all, but he's tried to no. look at different uh, ways that um, people have worldviews or uh, uh, think the world is, you know, the world is dangerous, you know, the world is safe, the world is enticing, the world is exciting. He, he's he's kind of ha- come up with a whole list of all these kind of primals um, and how that influences how one lives one's life, how one lives one's life, how one one's politics. It might be really interesting to, to link up uh-huh. uh, perceptual diversity with worldview diversity uh, of these yeah, primals. Yeah, absolutely. So absolutely. An There's a lot. I could, yeah, Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, um, really, really great stuff. Um, I'd be remiss if we didn't discuss free will at all. Uh, and it's just a topic that I think both of us agree uh, is can get really um, irrelevant at a certain point. So, some, some, you know, like people are are debating and arguing about things that don't really matter for to most humans uh, living their lives who are trying to. Um, do better in the world, you know, from where where they were before. They're trying to reach their goals. They're trying to have this sense of agency. Um, this the whole thing when it gets co opted by the the thing. Do we have magical free will? We don't have magical free will. I think that's kind of like a red herring in a lot of ways. Um, from what people really really care about. Um, your 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 approach to I like your approach to it. You kind of say that free will, even consciousness, even the self. The, it's not the right, right, right question asking is, are they illusions? Because you argue they're all perceptions. Well, I think that's a nice way to, to sidestep a lot of the debate, the aspects of the debate that I don't really think matter to most people. Do you agree? Well, I agree with myself, yes. And since you agree with yes! me, that's <laughs> yes. not surprising. Love um, it. But, but you put it, yeah, you summarized it very, very beautifully. I, I think the, the most productive way to think about free will is as a variety of perception. And thinking of it this way, just 
rapidly dissolves a lot of the things that cause people confusion. The thing about free will, I think the reason it creates so much confusion is that it brings together a number of independently confusing things. On the one hand, we have this idea about whether the universe is deterministic or whether it's stochastic with chance playing a role, noisy things happening. Then there's the nature of free will as a conscious experience. Does it have causal influence on the world? What role do our conscious experiences of free will play in making things happen? And then there's the the interaction with uh, politics and, and law. You know, when do we hold people responsible for their actions? Is it ever right to punish somebody for some transgression? And free will just takes all these controversial issues and boils them all up together in some sort of massive, unpleasant stew of confusion. And, and it's no surprise that it generally tastes pretty bad. Mm-hmm. So to try and strip away that confusion, I think the, the, the starting point, you can think of it as a kind of psychological null hypothesis, is that, okay, everything that we experience is a kind of perception. Let's try to refute that null hypothesis, or does that, or does that stand? And I think it kind of stands, um, because the kind of free will that we want to find a place for in our explanations of brain, mind, and consciousness isn't this magical free will, or that I call, I call right. it in the book, I think, spooky free will, this kind of free will that swoops in and changes the course of physical events in the universe, a kind of uncaused cause from our Cartesian ghost that just swerves the universe in a different direction. I mean, that's the kind of free will that requires us to give up the law of cause and effect uh, that just we don't even need because to, to have it is to reinstate this kind of um, all-knowing Cartesian dualistic soul that knows what to do and exactly how to, to get it done. I mean, that's something we, we left behind or should have left behind a long time ago. Um, so it really doesn't matter already whether the universe is deterministic or stochastic, because the only reason that could matter is if you want to find space for magic, spooky free will to come in and, and load the dice so that the universe goes one way rather than another way. Right. The only way you would want to do that is if you want to be God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And some people do, but, but you know, most <laughs> of us true. hopefully don't or certainly aren't. The kind of free will that is worth hanging on to, and here I'm much in agreement with Daniel Dennett, who's also been one of my mentors, I'm very fortunate to say, who talks about degrees of freedom and points out that we are complex systems, complex biological creatures, and the things that we do voluntarily still have prior causes, but the causes might lie if you stri- if you unfold them back in time. The causes will remain more within the organism than be uh, coming in from outside the organism. So a good example is just before recording this podcast, I made a cup of tea. Why did I make? I felt like a voluntary decision to do that, but of course I didn't. I'd made a cup of tea because I wanted a cup of tea. Why did I want a cup of tea? Well, because I grew up in England where. We're brought up to 
want to have a cup of tea. And I didn't choose to be born here or brought up here or any of this stuff. That's just the system that I am. So the, so, but it felt like a voluntary act. But no one forced me to, to make this cup of tea. It wasn't poured down my mouth. Uh, it was a, a voluntary action that aligned with my goals and desires. And it's an action that felt like it came from within. That's perfectly compatible with there being a deterministic universe, because I'm not saying that it's some immaterial me that parachuted in and you know, made the tea universe unfold rather than the coffee universe unfold. I was always going to, I was always going to have a cup of tea. That's just how things are. But the nature of the free will experience is what's, what's really perplexing because what does it feel like to make a voluntary action to have this experience? It feels like I'm doing what I decided to do, what I decided to do. And what, what is this I anyway? The I is just a collection of perceptions. One of them being the experience of free will, but you know, the, the cause is the other way around here. The self isn't executing free will. The ability to make voluntary actions and the experience of doing so is part of the self that so feels like they come from within. It feels like they're aligned with my goals and desires, which I didn't choose. And it feels, and here's the critical one, it feels like I could have done otherwise. That's the one that misleads people. But just because it feels like I could have made coffee rather than tea doesn't mean that I actually could have done. You can't replay the same tape and get a different outcome, even if you chuck a bit of noise in, unless you believe in magic free will. So what's the utility of having this sort of feeling that I could have done otherwise? Well, it's could be very useful for the organism because let's say, you know, I've just been building up this gradual intolerance to tea and I have this cup of tea and just feel terrible. Well, so my brain will learn this. And so the next time a similar situation happens, the next time I'm recording a podcast, you know, the universe will be different. My brain will be different. And that time I'll probably choose coffee instead. And it will again feel like I'm doing what I want to do. So we have the experience of the possibility of doing otherwise, not because in the moment we could, but because next time we might. And so here, I think it, it sort of snapped together for me when I was thinking about the parallel with the experience of, let's say, a color. We open our eyes, we see a, a world that is beautifully filled with color. Objects have color. But we know colors don't exist in a mind-independent way. I mean, the brain creates all these colors out of mixtures of just three wavelengths of light. Why does it do that? I mean, color depends on the brain and the universe. It doesn't exist objectively, but it's still very useful because it allows the brain to keep track of surfaces as lighting conditions change. There are all the good reasons why it's useful for the brain to construct color out of mere electromagnetic radiation. And I think the same thing goes for free will. It's very useful thing for the brain to give this sort of phenomenal character when it executes these kinds of actions. Because it means that the organism pays attention to them and may do something different in the future. It doesn't mean that, that just because it seems as though in voluntary action that the experience actually causes the action. It doesn't mean that's what's going on in just the same way that just because it seems that the car across the road is red, it actually isn't. It's really not red. It's not 
this direct mapping from the content of the experience to what's actually unfolding in the world. But that doesn't mean they're unrelated. I think they're related in a very powerful way. Like all perception, it's all indirect, but evolution has generally made it so that it's very useful for us. Yeah, there's there's Daniel Dennett's uh, Freedom Evolves idea. Yeah. Yeah. Look, um, I had a two-part, four-hour debate with Sam Harris about this, so we're not going to solve <laughs> in the next 10, 15 minutes. We're not, you know, maybe we'll have, well, we can, we can do the keep, let's keep up the conversation thing. But I, I will say, um, one thing I really liked, you said in your book, and you made it very clear, the experience of free will is not an illusion. Love right. that. Love that. That's real. That's, that's something that as a, an organism, a living organism, I can, you know, at least, say that's that's a real that's real um we don't need to yeah. deny that experience to people no that's that's right and i think that's that's so important i've noticed so over now many years of, of giving public talks about consciousness and you can sort of show that the visual experience of the world isn't quite what's going on and that colors might not exist you can even show that experiences of the self aren't to be taken for granted and that you can have all these fun manipulations of people experiencing their bodies in different ways or not at all and first person perspective can be manipulated can give people out of body experiences all of this is quite challenging to take on board but when you get to free will mm. that's where it seems empirically in my experience is the point of most resistance the idea that there is a sort of neuro mechanistic basis for and therefore explanation of free will is where I think those people feel most directly threatened by a science of consciousness. But I think it's it's a, the threat, it's a threat that's illusory, not the experience of free will. Because understanding how and why experiences of free will and voluntary actions happen doesn't deny those ex the reality of those experiences. And, and importantly, it doesn't deny their utility either. Yeah. Even even when we know experiencing even when we know red doesn't exist objectively in the world, it, you know, it nobody thinks that oh, damn it. Therefore, like red doesn't exist. So you know, my my life is now a colorless nightmare. No, you know, red still exists as a property of experience, and it still plays a role. I think exactly the same thing is true for experiences of free will. But the key thing here is it's experiences of free will, perceptions of free will that are real not some sort of pre-theoretical magic version of free will that yeah sweeps in and violates the laws of physics. So what you're saying is lived experience matters? <laughs> Humanistic psychology, isn't it? Yeah, there we go. Boom. Um, love it. Um, uh, just to put a, a pin in the free will thing and um, something that, you know, before we put a pin in it, I should say, before we pin it, put a pin in it, I want to say one more thing about it. Something that kind of bothers me about the whole thing is, is similar to what bothers me about the intelligence debate. Semantics. It comes down to semantics at the end of the day. I, I don't like when certain free will, uh, philosophers or psychologists, cognitive scientists act as though they have claim on the real definition of free will. I mean, at the end of the day, it's humans that are defining this term. Um, and to uh, this is why I really like the uh, Daniel Dennett's notion of there are free wills worth wanting in humans. Um, the the rewind the tape thing, like why do we have to get so stuck on that being the only 
uh, definition and, and, uh, and scope of free will, um, that, that matters to humans. Cause I really don't think it is. And I, um, uh, and I've been developing a model with my colleague Colin DeYoung on, uh, cybernetic free will and why that matters just as much. To, it matters more to humans than, than magic free will. Um, cybernetic free will is really, really what matters to humans. Do we have the capacity to reach our goals? Do we have the capacity to choose between various options and make decisions that move us closer? You know, like I was influenced, uh, I studied with Herb Simon, you know, that whole approach to mm. like reducing, you know, the means ends, you know, of, 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 of a, between your starting state and your goal state. Look, humans want to be able to know that they can do that. Right. And to them, I think that's a free will worth wanting. And I, I think you completely agree. I, I think I, yeah, I'm, I'd be interested to learn more, but I, I'm, I have this sort of bias of being quite um, positive about the cybernetic approach to whatever it might be, because yeah. back to an earlier part of our conversation, it's it's another way to think about how complex systems operate, how brains, bodies, and environments conspire together to deliver adaptive behavior uh, in a way that doesn't prioritize information processing that looks at coupled systems and goal-directed systems and the importance of control and feedback and regulation, all these things which don't have an an easy place in the computational information processing metaphor of the mind. And yeah, I mean, I think it sounds like you're thinking along lines I find very appealing that free will or the experiences of free will arise in contexts where we are trying to reach our goals and where it requires the coordination of a complex system in order to do so. And those cognitive mechanisms are real. It's not an illusion that we have a dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. I mean, there, there are certain things that, that do make us unique um, uh, compared to turtles, you know, when it comes to free will. It's not like... It's all an illusion, you know, that we're, we have anything extra special that gives us that phenomenology. You know, no, it's real. Well, that's right. That's why I think it is a little more than semantics because there are these demonstrable cases of, say, people, you know, losing cognitive control. And you may say, well, that's got nothing to do with free will, but I actually think it has. It has to do with free will in the real world. And that's the kind of free will that it's worth caring about. Okay, we're going to put a pin there because that's a perfect place to put the pin in. I was waiting for the place to put the pin in and that <laughs> right there. Right there. I'm glad I you found agree. it. I completely agree. Completely agree. So let, let's end talking about artificial intelligence because that's just, you know, there was a New York Times article that came out the other day. Uh, show, this computer that says, I, I, I deserve more respect <laughs> from humans. Why, why do I not have my, why is no one attending to my needs? <laughs> Now, look, so we're not that far away off from computers starting to say this kind of stuff. I mean, we're, we're there. We're there. We're there. Um, we're there, right? Not, maybe not as full, you know, you know, not every computer, you know, rebelling yet, rebelling yet. But, um, you know, it, it's, it, the process is starting. So what are your thoughts on um, whether or not uh, those computers are conscious? What computers will ever be conscious? I mean, I, I know I read your books. So I know a lot of your thinking on it, but, you know, not all of our audience has, has read your full book yet. Can you just uh, briefly summarize your position on that? I'm very suspicious and skeptical of the idea that machine consciousness is on the way in the near term. Um, but I do think there are plenty of things to worry about when it comes to machines, whether they're chatbots or other things, giving us the impression that they 
are conscious. I think that could be very disruptive. Even being totally agnostic about the ontological status of consciousness here. So why the skepticism? Well, it's from many directions. One of them is this pre-theoretical association of intelligence and consciousness that seems to drive a lot of the discourse, the idea that as AI, I mean, I, I also just a, a tiny sidebar, I struggle with the term AI because it, it yeah, me too. Uh, yeah. It makes entities of things which aren't entities and biases are thinking about them in, a, in unhelpful ways. But you know, and, it is what it is. Yes. Yes. And it also kind of has built into the assumption that the more intelligent robots become, the more conscious they'll become, which is a, a very erroneous assumption. Right. Exactly. If you if you just use the word, I don't know, predictive statistics or something like that, then it seems less intuitive that as these predictive statistical algorithms get more competent, that at some point the lights come on and they're also not only competent and smart, but but conscious. So consciousness and intelligence are related in us in some interesting ways, but they're not related in principle. So just making something smart doesn't imply, at least not to me, that at some point they become conscious. And there are other clues here that often the, the point at which people think this transition to consciousness might happen also turns out to be the point at which AI reaches this potentially mythical, generalized human intelligence level. Why would we think that's a threshold? Well, again, it's, it signals a sort of residual human exceptionalism. Um, so things that get smart don't necessarily get conscious. And then on the other hand, we have this whole skepticism about information processing as what brains in practice do and what consciousness depends on. Um, machine learning algorithms, yeah, they do do information processing. But if that's not the best way to ultimately understand what brains do, then again, there's no reason to think that a form of information processing will instantiate consciousness. Some things when you, you know, you might just have a simulation of it. And that's fine. I mean, we accept that in many other cases in, in science, right? We have weather forecasting systems that can be brilliantly detailed simulations of, let's say, a tornado, but nobody thinks it actually gets wet and windy inside the weather computer. Um, for many things, simulation is not the same as instantiation. Um, so I'm skeptical that consciousness is going to be aligned with intelligence or that it's necessarily something that information processing will give rise to. And finally, on the positive side, there's all this recognition that consciousness is intimately related to our nature as living systems. And yeah, I have to concede that this is not by no means proven. It's just where the ideas and, and experiments that I've been involved in have led. And if we prioritize the this recognition, um, and the possibility that it might be life rather than information processing that is breathing fire into the equations of consciousness, then intelligent machines will need to be alive in order to be conscious in some biologically meaningful, perhaps cybernetic, control-oriented way. All of this is to say that that you know, I just I just think there's there's a lot of um, a lot of science fiction 
techno bro driven hype about the possibility of machine consciousness. And it's not even something we should be aiming for. Like if we did build conscious machines, what an absolute disaster that would be. Now we have generated the potential for untold levels of suffering that we might not even recognize as suffering. My colleague and friend Thomas Metzinger is very vociferous on this point, basically saying there should be a moratorium on all attempts to develop what he called synthetic phenomenology and to build conscious machines because it's just morally reprehensible thing to do. And you shouldn't. We see so often in technology that people build things because it's cool, because they think it's cool. And that is just the worst reason. You know, it, it's there are many things well, you can build which might Musk. seem cool. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine many people are, but I'm not sure he's listening. And you know, that things have there are unintended consequences of things that can be built simply because they're cool. So just on the outside chance that we might accidentally, that, you know, I, I very well might be wrong. And it might well be that, in fact, a sufficiently sophisticated information processing system suddenly becomes conscious. I think it's unlikely, but who knows? I might be wrong, in which case we have all sorts of problems. So I don't think we should be trying to do it. But fortunately, I don't think it's really possible. But what is happening with all these chatbots is um, systems that are playing on our psychological tendency to anthropomorphize. Now, we can't help projecting mind into these systems. And it's unsurprising that we do that because the brain is always trying to sort of find the most efficient causal explanation for something. And to interpret these utterances that these chatbots are, are producing, unless you're, you're trying to catch them out, which is still pretty easy if you're really trying. But if you're not really trying, then it's kind of reasonable that you project minds and therefore, for most people, also consciousness into these things. And here again, I think this tendency to, to entityfy them, I wouldn't say personify because they're not people, but to make it an entity just biases the debate. And if we, if we, um, recognize that these are tools and not entities, then I think that would change the discourse. It would change our relationships. And Dan Dennett, again, found with great wisdom, he said many years ago about AI that we should remember we're building tools, not colleagues, and be mindful of the difference. And I think he's right now more than, more than ever. You know, I saw this headline in the paper the other day about um, the possibility of it said, will an AI be the first to discover alien life? And this was, I think this was in Nature magazine, actually. It was a headline in Nature, which is, of course, you know, a very august scientific journal. And that wound me up a lot because it's, again, it's making an algorithm an entity. And it, you know, no one would ever say, will statistics be the first to discover extraterrestrial life? It doesn't even make sense as a question. So there's a lot to worry about, but it's not the kind of things that that some people are worrying about. It's really the social impacts of of things that might appear to be conscious, plus all the other other discourse which we, you know, I'm sure would be less controversial about. You know, this is going to be disruptive for people's jobs, for for various industries, for for truth. You know, these chatbots, they confabulate, you know, they make stuff up because they don't actually understand anything. They just regurgitate predictions. So that can be very disruptive. Lots of things to worry about, but consciousness, not so much. Aren't you worried that uh, even if the computers aren't conscious, they still will be programmed 
to learn to uh, and at some point reach a level where they try to seek out anyone who says statements such as they're not people you know um as and and view that as a sign of disrespect and uh, have a program exterminate like i feel like there's like a pascal's wager here that i'm not willing to i'm not willing to be a, to have a quote here uh saying that they're not human even if they aren't human i feel like they're you could see a world where they get programmed to be disrespect you know the uh, computer lives matter hashtag like i see someday happening yeah i mean you you, you could say it. this is just i mean you could rightly i think accuse me of some hypocrisy or at least inconsistency here in in you know on the one hand i'm i'm saying that you know, consciousness is is something that is much more widespread than humans and we shouldn't be so human-centric about it right. um, but i seem to be massively prejudiced about carbon-based things now and, and yeah just, you're a little bit prejudiced <laughs> prejudiced <yeah>. there <laughs> and, and and you're right it, it's it's hard to to 100 you know, assert the you know, the merit of making that distinction, but but I think there are reasons for it, and we've we've discussed the reasons already. I won't reiterate them. I think it's a view that you know, I'm prepared to have my mind changed on. Um, I'm not sure I'm necessarily going to hedge my bets in in the Pascal <laughs> wager kind of thing. <laughs> okay, but I, okay, but I, but that's I do neurotic. Think is that quite, too neurotic of me? <laughs> no, but I think it, I think you 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 do highlight something that may well happen, which is that these these algorithms. They can manipulate our behavior. So, yeah. you know, they, they, and, and that can be done in ways that, that we might not even be aware of. One of the big problems for machine learning, as, as I think many people know, is its opacity. Um, it's very hard often to know why these algorithms produce the particular outputs or make the decisions and classifications, um, that they do. So we're ceding a lot of power to things that we don't quite understand. And that you know, may take off in in unforeseen directions. Those are certainly things to worry about. I'm worried about it. <laughs> I'm worried about it. I'd rather be on the side of the computers. Well, I I I suppose the most realistic thing that will happen um, in the not so distant future, or you know, what Neuralink is trying, you know, ways of uh, human computer in um, uh, you know, like cyborgs. <laughs> Uh, I don't think that's too science fiction. Um, uh, and, uh, and when that happens, it ra it'll raise lots of interesting questions about, um, what, what part of the system is conscious? Um, what, um, can we upload our consciousness to some eternity, uh, method in s some way where we can, we can keep our consciousness going after the physical body, after life, biological life leaves us? Um, where do you kind of stand in your thinking about the far future and the possibility of of consciousness continuing, uh, consciousness continuing beyond our biological selves? I think there's another kind of wager there, isn't there? There are some people there is. who, of the more transhumanist persuasion, who are hopeful, optimistic, betting to some extent on precisely the ability that they'll be able to upload their consciousness to the future cloud yeah. or whatever it might be that's a bet i'm not prepared to take you know i think it relies on all these assumptions that are very hard to know which way to take them you know, the, the fundamental assumption that matters here is the substrate dependency of consciousness mm. yeah you know, it could be that you know we upload 
a digital description of all my synapses and glial cells and, and whatever whatever level of detail we, we might want about your brain, my brain. We upload it and run it as a simulation in the cloud. Now, that could end up just being a, a simulation of me without it feeling like anything to be that simulation. It seems very plausible that that's the case. I mean, there's no reason, back to our discussion about simulation instantiation, there's no particular reason why consciousness needs to be substrate independent. And I think good reason to believe that it isn't. And that blows the idea of consciousness uploading right out of the water if consciousness is substrate dependent in some way. So I would not make that wager of that being possible. I'd rather look after our worlds in the here and now. I mean, it's a kind yeah. of rapture, isn't it? It's a sort of, it's got a religious um, feeling to it. This idea that, that we seek some non-corporeal immortality. And I'm always suspicious of, of worldviews that go after that to the exclusion of making a better world in the here and now. You know what's interesting? Um, there seems to be this, um, for most people, this desire for the immortality. What, what, what is it really? It's an immortality of a sense of self perspective. But that seems to to disappear when you do certain things like psychedelics, or you do um, certain in certain in certain self transcendent experiences. The fear of death seems to significantly go away when our sense of I is um, going away. And I think there's something just so profound there. I, I, I can't 100% articulate what is precisely so profound about that, but I think that there is something that that's telling us. And I know that your book ended with, you know, your last line of your whole book is like, you know, at this point, I think we should leave at the afterlife to um, as a mystery. <laughs> but I don't want to leave the end of this podcast. I don't want to leave that to a mystery. Um, and I also don't want you to tell me for sure <laughs> what happens one way or another. <laughs> but isn't it kind of possible that after our biological self is dead, you know, after, you know, that, you know, and, and the I uh, perspective on consciousness is, 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 is gone, there is still something that perhaps remains that we just don't know what it form it takes, what it experiences like, um, but that there's still something that, that lasts. We, you don't know for sure, right? No, I mean, I, I, I feel sympathy with your, with your kind of clinging to straws here. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> Thank you. But we do, right? We do. But we, I mean, and I'm sure I do too. It's, it's against an internal hypocrisy here because I think we're designed at some level and brains were evolved to stay alive. And so built into our psychological infrastructure is this desire to persist. I mean, it's fundamental to our ability to persist. And that conflicts with the knowledge that we have, with a good reason, good, well-justified belief that we have that we won't persist forever. And of course, that's a the realization that each of us comes to in our lifespan, usually when we're a child, isn't it? Oh shit, I might die at some point. Right. And then the and then the sort of weirdness of the idea that, well, hold on a minute. There's been this whole span of time that happened before I was born when I wasn't there. Yeah. 
So why should why isn't the span of time going to happen on the other side too? It, it seems we have this weird asymmetry with how we consider uh, persistence of the self. We're not worried about typically. We're not worried. We don't have a FOMO for all the time before we were born, but we do for the time after we die. But yeah, I mean everything that we know about the intimate dependency of the brain and consciousness really does suggest that when the brain stops, you stop. And I talk in the book, at both ends of the book, about anesthesia, general anesthesia, as being as close to the oblivion of not existing as any of us are going to get without actually dying. And the thing about general anesthesia, the thing about oblivion is that it's, it's not the experience of absence. It's the, ex, it's the absence of all experience. There is just nothing going on. Nothing at all. And it's incredibly hard to project oneself into a situation where there's nothing going on because it doesn't make any sense. You're projecting yourself to a situation where there is no self also. So we have to come at it indirectly. And here I think you're exactly right. There are different ways to come at this. When people take psychedelics, there's a sense of ego dissolution, which does sometimes for some people correlate with with a reduction of fear of mortality. There's meditation where we realize through practice that this experience of self is not a stable, unchanging thing which could be lost, but is always changing, is always different, is a construction too. And then there's the perspective from philosophy and neuroscience, which is also conveying that message that the self is a process that's an assemblage of related perceptions and that it's always changing. I think these things converge hopefully in reducing our, our, our fear of, of non-existence. I, I, you know, I, I think it's, it would be hubristic of me to say that it can get rid of it. You know, I certainly don't feel comfortable yet with the prospect of not existing. Um, but I think my views on it have changed as my views on, on what the self are have changed. But here we, here we roll back to, to an early part, just because there are now these different perspectives on the self. It doesn't mean that I no longer experience myself as a, as an entity that that persists over time i do in the same way that yeah i still perceive red as a color out there in the world but these these different perspectives on it i think soften the implications of that experience for how we might think about the end of life and how we might lessen our grip on the desire to exist forever it seems like we lessen that grip by changing our perspective um, of uh, clinging so hard to the I, clinging so hard to the unique identity, clinging so hard to um, the, 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 the evolved desire for the self to persist. Um, if we can just lessen that grip, you know, just, there's no just about it. But if we can lessen that grip, it seems like we, we seem to make more peace with oblivion. On that note, <laughs> thank you.
thank you so much for being on the psychology podcast today. Uh, it was great to finally meet you, and I hope we can keep up the conversation. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy we got the chance to talk, and yeah, be happy to continue it. Thanks so much. Me too. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com or on our YouTube page, The Psychology Podcast. We also put up some videos of some episodes on our YouTube page as well, so you'll want to check that out. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com.